Hi, this is Angie Fiedler-Sutton. And Jen Morris. And you're listening to Episode 9 of Stage Savvy. Jen, last month we interviewed each other, and yes. we talked about various things that we've been involved in, and various things that we and our favorite shows and whatnot. And you mentioned Stephen Dietz. I did, I did. One of my favorite shows that I was in was Rocket Man by Stephen Dietz, and that actually caused us to decide on this month's topic, which is our favorite playwrights. Yes. Was he your favorite playwright before you were no. in it, or did that cause the favorite playwright, or how did he become your favorite playwright? That introduced me to Stephen Deeds. Of course, he had done a lot more works than I actually realized he had done. And it's like, oh, oh, I, I knew more than I thought. But that kind of introduced it to me that, oh, I really like this writing style. This is, this is a little unique. And then I had the opportunity later on to be the stage manager for Private Eyes. So tell us about Stephen Dietz. Give us a quick 10-minute round introduction. And as you know, this is definitely not a full-on for either of our favorite playwrights. We could probably, especially for me, mine's going to be Christopher Durang. I could go on and on and on about him, probably a full 30 minutes about him. So this is definitely a very condensed history of both of these playwrights. We will be linking any information we may have found on the show notes. So if you do want to learn more information, you can go there. But this is obviously your, well, theater for dummies, your dummies style version of this is just the quick and the the bold. So Jen, tell us about Stephen Dietz. Well, and to be fair with Stephen Dietz, and I think you'll find this as well when we talk about Christopher Durang, but... Stephen Dees is only 53 years old, so he's not, he's still got a lot of time ahead of him to, to do some, some really cool things. But he was born in 1958 in Denver. He is an American playwright, obviously, being born in Denver and, and working here. Um, and he is most known for doing a lot of regional works. He is a director that, and writer that really uses the regional theater all over the country, particularly outside of New York outside of Seattle, Minneapolis, places that he's lived. He really utilizes the regional theater, and I think that's why he touches a lot of different areas throughout the country versus being a big Broadway guy. Um, In 2010, he was named one of the most produced playwrights in America, with the exception of Shakespeare. He was eighth on the list of top ten, and he tied with Tennessee Williams and Edward Albee for a number of productions. So he is, again, touching on that regional persona. He, He obviously is being produced all over the country at a very high volume, especially you know, Tennessee Williams and Edward Albee, those are pretty big names. They, they, they're, they're run through pretty well. So to, to kind of tie with those guys, he's got a lot of works that are being done. Um, he was born and raised in Denver, as I said. Dick did get his Bachelor of Arts in Theater from the University of Northern Colorado in 1980. And shortly thereafter, he moved to Minneapolis, and he directed a lot of new plays at the Playwright Center there. Um, that was his big gig. And while he was there... In that time in Minneapolis, he formed his own theater group called the Quicksilver Stage so he could do his own works. He started off as the director as his means for money, but his desire was really playwriting. And so that's when he branched out while he was still a young man to go that direction. He was commissioned by the Act Theater to write God's Country, which is one of his biggest plays that is known. um, And that brought him to Seattle in 88. 
He loved it so much. He stayed there until 2006 full-time. And and today he kind of goes back and forth from Seattle to Austin because he's currently a playwright teacher professor for the University of Texas in Austin. So I can imagine that that class is usually pretty packed. <laughs> I would say not often that you get a actual working playwright to be your playwright professor. So Exactly. A very a very cool thing for for Austin. So uh, that that's where he spends a lot of time obviously during the school year. He has won the Penn USA Award in Drama for Lonely Planet, which is his most widely produced work. He has several regional and adaptation awards. I mean, just a plethora of awards that were listed, including the Kennedy Center Award, the Reader's Digest Adaptation Award. There are several, again, because he's so known for his regional work, a lot of more regional awards that, you know, kind of touch base directly in each area that he was at. He has quite a wide range of shows, and that was actually something that, you know, the, the shows that I did, Rocket Man, it was unlike anything else I'd ever seen, um, or read, and, you know, Private Eyes, even though the concept wasn't too unusual from the standpoint of a show within a show within a show within a show, mm-hmm. it was so complexly written that I was like, I don't know what show we're on <laughs> when we were doing it. But he ranges from the political to comedy. Some of his more famous political shows, The Last of the Boys, God's Country, Halcon uh, Days, and Lonely Planet, um, those are some of his his best-known political shows. Um, some of his best-known comedic plays is Becky's New Car, which is the most recent work. Uh, More Fun Than Bowling, Over the Moon. The, those are big ones. But a lot of them have a central theme of personal betrayal and deception. And I kind of noticed that in, in the shows that I did and in some of the ones that I've seen. You know, Private Eyes was the one that I did that I... The, you know, it all was all centered around a betrayal within a marriage and another show, Trust, the trust of the play fiction, Force of Nature. Those are other examples of where you can really find that theme just really strong throughout the show. And, you know, a lot of these shows are being put out. There's 30 different original shows, 11 adaptations. Um, you can get them through Dramatists or Samuel French um, if you are interested. In, in reading some of those works, they are available. Wanderlust is another one of the big ones that he's done. Uh, a lot of people are pretty familiar with that show. And so you're you're welcome to go out there. Again, like I said, adaptations are a big thing. Dracula um, has been done in this area. And that that's a big one that a lot of people have, have an interest in, particularly when you get to the October season. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when this gets posted, it will have already closed. But River City Community Players is doing their his production of Dracula. Or has just done it. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, and I know, I want to say, and I may be wrong because it was like five, six years ago, if if not further than that, but City Theater of Independence had done an excerpt of either that. Or has he done an adaptation of Frankenstein as well? I did not see that on the list. Okay, I didn't well, then see I where think Sherlock it, Holmes. Okay, I, I want to say they did an adaptation of his Dracula for the, um, AA, the Act Fest that runs every other year. Um, that I had seen uh, a preview of that they were trying to get, you know, to cut down to the, it has to be, I think, 10 minutes or 20 minutes or yeah. something like that. And so that's pretty much the only ver- only time I think I've seen him. But uh, the Becky's, Becky's new, new car, car. Um, has that been produced locally? Because that name, it sounds very familiar. Maybe I'm just recognizing it. It might have been. I'm not certain if it's been produced locally here. And uh, any listeners who are, are do know that if it has been or if it's upcoming, please post um, on stage savvy that you are aware of 
uh, of the time it's being posted. I'm not certain. It's the it's his newest work. It's his, one of the more popular ones. It's, it's won some awards lately, so it's quite possible. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I'm recognizing the name just because I'm seeing it. I, I subscribe to the Playbill RSS. Yeah. Maybe I saw it there versus other places. It just that that title sounds. I was like, I recognized it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So um, did you have more information about his home life? You know, to be honest, there was not a lot of information I could find on him. Uh, Again, I don't know if it's because he's so young or just he just keeps to himself. There was not a lot on his background growing up other than he grew up in Denver. There wasn't a lot other than what his accomplishments were. Uh, I almost considered not doing Stephen D's just because of the lack of information, but he really is my favorite because he does have a unique writing style where he really integrates ideas and really integrates storylines, and he does not write in a traditional linear fashion. It is very feminine um, in the plays that I've read anyways, where it's not even circular. It's more like a tornado. It just kind of goes down and down and down and down and down into this complex end. That's that's kind of what what drew me to him. So I don't have a lot of information on on Stephen Dietz from the standpoint of, you know, I I'd, I'd started doing research on him before um, when we were kind of talking about topics when we first did the female playwriting, mm-hmm. uh, our, our first episode going there, and I was like, well, what about male playwrights? I was like, I should pull up stuff on Stephen Dietz. I found even less then, <laughs> and that was only what a couple of months ago, right? Or I guess it's been almost, almost a, a year. year. We recorded in December. Wow. So uh, even more information has come out since then. But what I, again, kind of going back to why I find him interesting is the works that I've been involved in, the works that I've read, something has stuck with me. Um, it's kind of, you know, every once in a while you, you have that playwright or artist or whoever that for whatever reason, it just kind of leaves an impression that doesn't go away. Um, like silly putty, the impression's left on you, and you can't—you're not going to rub it off. It's just, just going to be a part of you. So that's part of the reason I, I chose Stephen Dietz from the fact that he was interesting. I like that he's an American playwright. Not that I have anything against European playwrights or anything like Non-American that, playwrights. exactly, or <laughs> South America or anything like that. But I, I do like that it's an American playwright. He's current. He's still producing works. There's still a lot that could come from him. And I like that he's he's in education. I, I like that he's passing on these skills to future playwrights. And, and I feel that by pushing the regional theater, obviously we're one of these regions in Kansas City, I like that he really utilizes smaller markets to push his works, and I think that's how he is one of the top-produced playwrights versus going straight to the top, like, well, I've got to write my big Broadway show, and I've got to produce it, and then I'll be famous and make millions, and... Really, his fame comes from the small theaters, um, which, which I, I appreciate, and the bigger regional theaters. But a, a lot of the influence he's had has been through what we would see here, going to any of the theaters here, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's community, whether it was professional. There's that opportunity to see him. How many of his plays have you have you read? Um, or in one fashion or another, whether it's being involved or just reading it? I'd say probably five or six, kind of going through, you know, and again, a lot of it's it's been a long time, so don't ask me for a lot of feedback on it, but it's been <laughs> a long time. But, you know, God's Country, I went through back in college. I've read most of Lonely Planet from when there was an excerpt done um, from college. Obviously, the two that I did. Wonderlust, I've seen 
some of the production. So so kind of having a little bit of touch there, um, as well as the adaptations going to, to, to Dracula. That's, that's a pretty common one. And then I'm really interested to read his uh, Sherlock Holmes, The Final Adventure. I, I, I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan, and mm-hmm. so I'm kind of interested how he, he's really good at suspense and mystery and how he tied it in. Oh, well, that's great. Um, I know you've mentioned you're not wanting to necessarily direct, but is there a specific version of, of production of his that you would like to be involved in again? You know, I wouldn't mind doing Rocket Man again. I, again, touching back on it being my favorite, but uh, I think God's Country uh, would be really interesting. Okay, well, if you want any more information about Stephen Dietz, we'll be posting the link to his Wikipedia entry. He does not apparently have a website, and at least not that we know of, but no. we'll link that in the show notes and all that. Now it's my turn. I think I've mentioned it before, and I, I hate to brag, but you know this is one of the things you have to brag about, that I got to meet Christopher Durang back in April of 2008 when he was at the William Inge Center. They were celebrating him. He is my favorite playwright be for partly the very first play I ever directed was an actor, The Actor's Nightmare, written by him. It's a short one act, for those of you who are not familiar, which basically sends up all the various tropes of the infamous Actor's Nightmare. There's a parody of Private Lives, of Beckett, of Shakespeare, and of Thomas More, whatnot. And it just goes very dark very quickly, very much black humor. In it, and that's what drew it to me. It was not only the meta elements, I love shows that are very meta. They're very much aware of itself as being a show. But I also love the fact of this black humor of that he was making fun of, you know, the very last scene. I don't want to ruin it for you, but it involves a executioner. This is where I got to buy my first axe. <laughs> and let's just say it does not end on a happy note. And there's the comedy is about that. My husband, uh, who's you've heard on this before, is probably an even bigger fan, and he's actually directed two of his productions. He directed uh, Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All, which we'll talk a little bit about here in a bit. And he also directed an excerpt from a short TV script that he had done called The Hardy Boys and the Mystery of Where Babies Come From, mm-hmm. which is exactly what you may think it is. It's basically sending up the old Hardy Boys TV show from the 70s. Golly gee whiz, that kind of thing. And uh, apparently Nancy Drew has a bun in the oven and they have, they, they're asking their dad as to what exactly that means. So, um, it, so he was able to do that. When I got to meet him in, uh, in April, he was actually there. He did a conversation with uh, the person um, at the Inge Festival. And so I took some, took some notes. I couldn't record it uh, for, for obvious reasons. But here's some of the things I learned. And I'll link to the article I wrote about it for Casey Stage for this. So if you want to read more. But he actually wrote his first play when he was eight years old. Uh, it was a two-page wow. take on I Love Lucy. And his mother, who was obviously a huge influence on him, um, had friends over to read plays, very, especially Hay Fever, which was his first introduction to Noel Coward. And then when um, he, he quoted, I was very shy. My mother prided herself on being my press agent. In high school, his work was playful and not especially dark. I told you that one of the things that draws me to his work is that it's that got that black humor. But apparently he didn't get to that till. The, the college area but he started going into the absurd and the dark area in his senior year with a, a play he titled suicide and other diversions he attended harvard and he blanked on playwriting he could not do it he had severe depression which he readily admitted and it was through a work with a therapist that he finally started writing again and he started writing the nature and purpose of the universe his quote is i enjoy comedy but i'm troubled by things it's hard to explain about laughing at the dark. Some people don't get it. Some find it difficult. It's just so extreme, you laugh at the extremity. That's what draws him to the black comedy. 
Now, um, we talked about Sister Mary Ignatius. That's probably his most controversial play um, because it is about the Catholic Church. It's, um, if you're not familiar about it, Sister Mary comes, talks about some of the Catholic dogma that's out there, and then she's visited by these five people from who had had her as a teacher who on the surface say they're there to do the annual Christmas pageant, but on the surface they're actually there to shame her in a way of how mean she was as a nun and how that caused several issues in them. One of them um, is abusive. One of them had to, you know, got raped and was told that that was God's choice. Very much, you know, each of them were severely damage based on her harsh strict rules about the and it is about catholic dogma not necessarily about the church and that's where the controversy comes a lot of people who haven't read the play who just know it's about that immediately jump to the conclusion that it's slamming the church and it's not he's very much aware that this is more about the dogma that the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law so to speak and in fact he readily admits he is an atheist now but he talked about he wanted to write a play about after he stopped believing But it's mostly about dogma. His main thing was that that really got him was the concept of limbo and um, especially the and the church's ideas on sexuality. I mean, limbo, it made him made him think that God was maybe a bureaucrat. You know, you had to 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 deal with to get to heaven or to to hell. But um, he doesn't feel like it's it's against the church again. But he was, you know, the church's view on sexuality, especially masturbation and how it's considered a sin. His quote was, for teen boys, masturbation is a big issue. So Hitler is in hell and you're in hell. And he didn't see how that equated, how masturbation could be equated to, to, you know, someone like Hitler. Like I said, he readily admit that he was depressed. Um, but And he had a mantra of nothing ever works out. And he readily admitted in the interview that he still has it, but he's learned to accept it. Um, his three fears in college were that he was going to kill himself, he was going to have a nervous breakdown, and that he was going to have to move back home with his mother and live there the rest of his life. <laughs> and he still admits that he still has some of those fears. And that was one of the things when meeting him and, and, and interacting with him, he was, it made him very much humor, very human to me. I mean, I, I will not say I'm a rabid fan. There are some of his plays I don't particularly enjoy, especially Bet and Boo. I think that just, it's a little too bizarre even for me. But, you know, I still like, the ones I like, I love kind of thing. So it's one of those things. He it was born in 49, which makes him 62 currently, in New Jersey. He grew up in Berkeley Heights. He did attend Catholic school, which explains uh, Sister Mary. He currently lives in Bucks County with his partner, John Augustine, and they've been together for 20 years. According to Wikipedia, his work deals not only with the Roman Catholic dogma and culture, but issues of child abuse and homosexuality. He's written a number of plays, and he's also he's also an actor. He's been both on stage and screen. And in fact, have you seen The Secret of My Success? No, but it's in the, my queue, ironically The, the Michael enough. J. Fox one? He is in a bit part in that. The character of Davis, he's like a bit part much put upon he's always giving these great ideas that he just basically gets slammed down on it's like maybe two minutes he was there for a day to record it but he's you know he's been on there uh, one of his best friends is sigourney weaver and and in fact is a fellow alum of harvard and they've done a number of things together um he's also a contemporary of beth uh, henley who we talked mm-hmm. about in the female playwrights they've actually written together before and include and has done various things uh, with her but she's he's also written a number of screenplays as well as some TV stuff, including, if you're old enough to remember, 
this show in the late 80s. It was a Carol Burnett special. Carol, Carl, Whoopi, and Carl was Carol Burnett, Robin Williams, Whoopi uh, Goldberg, and Carl Reiner. There's this uh, scene at a funeral that Robin Williams basically is there visiting. Uh, Carol Burnett's husband has died. Robin Williams is basically there to cheer her up and not to make her not be so sad at this funeral. And it's hilarious scene. It's one of those things where I, as soon as I read this, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that scene. And it was 87. He wrote that. (laughs) And it was one of the few times where they did it per the script once, but then they let Robin riff on it. He constantly was trying to get Carol Burnett to crack up. I think he actually succeeded once. But um, it's one of those things where it's it's uh, making fun of how uh, funerals again back to the black comedy aspect. He's won the Pulitzer Prize in drama, or he was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in drama for Miss Witherspoon, which is was written in two thousand five two thousand six, uh, which is about reincarnation. This lady gets reincarnated and she has to decide what she wants to do with her life. And then uh, the I think his most recent work is Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Bob Cratchit's Wild Christmas Binge, mm-hmm. which I bought when I was there, so he may have written something since then. But I know Okta did that, I want to say, last year or the year before? Uh, yeah, it was It was the same year I did Private Eyes. So um, I have did not get a chance to see it then, but I do have the script version, and it is exactly what you think. It's a send-up of all the things in Christmas Carol that, reading it in today's day and age, you sit there and go, really, dude, really? And he pretty much wrote, Mrs. Uh, Bob Cratchit is just goes off on all this bad stuff that's happening uh, to Bob and to during the Christmas Carol. And it is a a hilarious send up of Christmas Carol while still being, you know, honorable. He's he's done that, too, with uh, uh, For Whom the Southern Bell Tolls, which Mm -hmm. is a send up of Tennessee Williams, The Glass Menagerie. And that is a one act as well. Um, We're running short on time. So did you have any other questions about? During, um, you, you know, I think, and, and maybe you can agree with me. You know, I, I did Naomi in the living room with Durang, and I've used several um, monologues from his works. I'd say that it's a great work for young people who still are trying to figure out what monologues to do or scenes to do. Yes, um, it, it there is content, and a lot of them to be, you know, you might want to be aware of, just like you did with the dark, uh, dark comedy, but. Um, would you agree or have any pointers for, for a lot of young actors that are looking for some contemporary pieces? Well, The Actor's Nightmare actually has some great monologues from the, the, the George, the, the accountant who somehow winds up on stage. He has this good comedic monologue that, you know, I think the best one is, you know, he's constantly asking for line. He's, to be or not to be, that is the question. Line, line. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave and I, whether tis nobler in the mind's eye to kill oneself or not killing oneself, to sleep a great deal. We are such a stuff as dreams are made on, but our lives are rounded with a little sleep. It's basically him trying to remember every batch of Shakespeare he can remember um, <laughs> and obviously compiling a bunch of Shakespeare together. So that's a very good comic monologue for you. Uh, but he also does some serious stuff, too. Um, there was one production I got to see. It was um, Betty's Summer Vacation. That Rich and I had gone to just off Broadway sh- a number of years ago. It was they were still new. If that tells you how long ago it was, we had gone there expecting something else. Found out that it was this Durang play instead, uh, because at this point I was not involved in Casey Stage. Again, tells you how long ago it was. But we ended up staying because we were both fans of Durang, and it is this wild piece on reality TV. Because um, this was right when Survivor was kicking off and all the, the clones of Survivor were starting to kick off that I think would be even more relevant today 
than it was when it was written, which you know had to have been at least eight years ago. Wow! But it was it basically this woman is on a you know thinks thinks she's going on this regular Christmas vacation and ends up being part of this reality TV show, and it's one of those that kind of like the Pillow Man that afterwards you're not quite sure if it's a you know you like the play but it's a good play yeah <laughs> kind of thing but in terms of tips no i just uh if you're gonna read something a lot of this stuff is available in libraries uh, sister mary is usually with the actor's nightmare in fact they're usually done together and in fact uh it, there's a suggestion as double casting if you want to do those two plays together there's also those are in with a number of one acts that you can usually find at the library so I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, it did. I think that way it gives Durang a little more availability to people that want to learn a little bit more about his works. But again, I will link to his website and we'll go from there. So we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Heidi Van, curator of the Fish Tank Performance Studio, and you're listening to Stage Savvy. Thank you for listening to episode 9 of Stage Savvy, hosted by Angie Fiedler-Sutton and Jen Morris. We hope you enjoyed it and would love to hear your feedback. Feedback. You can send us comments in several ways. You can comment on the blog posting for this podcast over at angiefsutton.wordpress.com, which is also where you'll find the show notes for the podcast, including links to the things we've talked about. You can also email A Fiedler, that's A as in food, or A, F as in food, I, E, D as in dog, L, E, R, at casesstage.com. Or if you'd like to comment, or if you'd like your comment to be on the podcast, you can leave us a voicemail at 816-23-STAGE. Please indicate your calling about the podcast, as that's also the regular number for Casey Stage Magazine. We'd like to thank KKFI-FM 90.1 for letting us record this podcast in their lovely studios, as well as Jason Bauer, who wrote the great theme music, A Variation of Guy Got Rhythm, and of course Heidi Van for that lovely plug. Since this is an audio podcast, we're ending each podcast with a song, usually written and or performed by a local musician. If you're a musician and would like us to highlight something you've written, just send us a note, again, either by email, afeedler at kcstage.com, or by calling 816-23-STAGE and mentioning the podcast. This month, we have Always by Carla Bauer. Carla is a musician from Kansas City whose first CD, When Your Eyes Open, is a compilation of poetry that she was writing at the age of 12. Always, the song we're playing, won Song of the Year finalist by the KCCM organization in 2008. She's gearing up for another tour this holiday season, promoting her Christmas album, Hope is Alive, A Time for Christmas. For more information about Carla, including where you can buy our CDs um, and download songs, you can go to her website, carlabauer.com, which will also be linked in the show notes. So, without further ado, here is Always by Carla Bauer.
Stage Savvy is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike License. For more information, visit creativecommons.org.